Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Women in Medicine. I'm Dr. Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Charlotte, North Carolina. And with me today, related to the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I have Dr. Solange Benjamin, Dr. Janisha Brown, and Dr. Emily McNeil. I'm going to ask them each to introduce themselves on today's topic and why this topic is so dear to their hearts. Dr. Benjamin. Hi, Jaspal. Thank you so much for having me. And call me Solange, please. I am a physician at Levine Children's Hospital. I am the medical director for the cardiac, pediatric cardiac ICU and the Children's Congenital Heart Center. And I've been here for the past four years. I've been in the field of pediatric critical care for going on 17 years. And I'm pretty passionate about women in this space, especially Black women in this space, simply because growing up through the system, I never saw faces that looked like me. I know that there were definitely struggles and challenges that that I dealt with as a woman and as a Black woman. I think the the biggest thing, you know, in, in critical care, you it, it tends to attract stronger personalities, very decisive personalities, which for men are, is a wonderful thing. You're strong, you're a good leader, you're, you know, you're, you're advocating. When a woman does the same thing, a lot more negative adjectives get added to the, to the story. I had to figure out how to navigate that and just, you know, not having any female Black mentors to turn to in this space. I just wanted to make sure that anytime I see another woman in, in critical care or or a, especially a Black woman in critical care, I make sure that I'm available to them as a sounding board and because and, it's just not something that I had and I had to figure out along the way. That's great how you're connected to this field. And I agree with you. Critical care is strong personalities, and it's sometimes hard for women. I've seen a lot of women struggle in this space to, to, do, to perform their career and to do it to the best of their abilities. And then thank you for mentoring others and teaching others as well and kind of passing on your wisdom. That's fantastic. Dr. Brown. Hi, Jasper. Thank you so much for inviting me for this. And I'm just really happy to be with these other amazing women on this call, too. So. So that's a loaded question. Why am I interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion? But I really think it's really because I feel like everyone deserves the right to be seen for who they are and to be heard. And also everyone deserves to have good health. And it shouldn't be based upon what society views as, you know, important or, or not important. And I know I shared a little bit about my story with you, Jasper, but this really became a, a major focus for me after I had um, spontaneous coronary artery dis- uh, dissection called SCAD 10 days after I had my second child. And less about the fact that I had that, but more about how I was treated during that experience in the emergency room really just opened my eyes to the fact that it doesn't matter how much education you have in a lot of these spaces. It doesn't matter, you know, how much money you have in, in some of these spaces. Really, sometimes it's just a matter of how someone sees you and if they if they are listening to you. And for a lot of, you know, patients that are doing, regardless of kind of how they are, where they fall on that, you know, socio, you know, demographic kind of scale in regards to money or education, they are having a lack in their health because of just the color of their skin or because of their gender or whatever their case may be. And so really that just really catapulted me into more of a focus 
on diversity, equity, and inclusion in health and really being able to advocate for, for patients in that space so that they can be well. Well, that's fantastic. And I know you're a friendly practitioner, and so that's fantastic as well. So you get to see both sides. You can see the outpatient setting, you get to sort of manage, see the part of being a patient on the acute side as as well. And we're going to sort of ask you a lot of questions related to your outpatient experience, as well as some of the additional education you're pursuing and how that drives you and what impact you're hoping it might have. Well, But before we get to there, we'll talk to Dr. McNeil. Emily? Good morning, Jess Ball. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Emily McNeil, and I'm an emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine physician at Atrium Health and Levine Children's Hospital. And I think stories like Jodisha's are ones that break my heart because I would say that the vast majority of people who go into emergency medicine do so with the understanding that we take care of a community and our community is diverse And we pride ourselves on taking care of everybody, whatever their need at whatever time. And so, but we fall short, obviously. And you can't work in the emergency department without seeing structural racism, gender inequities from violence to to health inequities. It is, it is just an environment that is ripe for seeing how structures impact individuals and what impact the healthcare system can have on those individuals. So that's how I got engaged in this work. And it's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Oh, that's fantastic. It's a great introduction. Thank you all for sort of sharing all that with us. So we're going to take a deep dive in. I mean, a lot of people, so diversity, equity, inclusion has become a very popular topic. And a lot of people don't know really sort of what's driving that popularity. What are the, some of the take, takeaways? Everyone kind of feels like this is made. Some people have told me it's way too much of this space that we're talking about. And we need to kind of get back to just taking care of patients. Talk to us about like, what are some central tenants? What do you tell people like that when they sort of say, you know what, I have these DI initiatives, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. I really think we need to double down on these. What do you tell them? I'm going to go backwards this time. Emily, what do you tell them sort of why they should pay attention to these, these, these issues? One, because we don't make widgets in medicine. We, we interact with people. We interact with all people, every, everybody. And I think that the, for those who are scientific minded and just want to see the numbers, I talk about the data and the data shows that we have incredible we have life expectancy differences that are appalling. We have outcomes differences that are shameful. And the data shows us very clearly that we don't provide equitable care and we have inequitable health. Now, there's there's a lot of nuances in that statement that I'll ignore for the time being, but that we also know and and industries and corporations have known this long ago that diversity in teams is important. It needs to be fostered. Inclusive and diverse teams are more successful. They make more successful organizations. We know biologically that it's true. Monoculture does not work. It's short-term, very successful, but long-term environments are not meant to be monocultures. To have a diverse biosystem in medicine we need to nurture that diversity. We need to help all of that diversity thrive or we are fragile. And so we, we care for a diverse population. We need a diverse group of people providing that care. We have a lot of inequities that we need to, to harness. And I think that depending on where I feel like people are coming from, I really try to bring them into what is our ultimate goal, which is caring for people. And, and I think that the, there's enough data out there that shows that diverse teams and having diversity in providers improving care is enough that it can convert most people given enough time. That's a great framework. And I I love it. Um, And I think it's a nice way that you're anchoring on 
the needs of the patients that we serve um, and that we that diversity is needed. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. I want you to think about sort of like, well, why don't we just train people and they'll take care of diverse needs? Why do we need people of different color, different, look different, think different than us? We can just train people up and just, we can take care of these people with their needs. But I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit because you mentioned data. I think that are, as you said, compelling. The data are compelling about across disease states, whether it be cardiovascular disease, other diseases, and in our for our audience is pulmonary critical care needs. So I'm going to move it over to to uh, Janisha. Talk to us a little bit about what you know about the data related to asthma or other types of pulmonary dis- disorders in the outpatient space, and what what data are there? What signals are there that we need to pay attention to? Well, we we know that you know, and for a lot of chronic diseases, um, we have decreased poor outcomes with patients who are um, from different minority groups. And sometimes you can look at that as a health disparity and um, really put the onus on the patient. Um, But quite honestly, a lot of issues come down to really the ability to create an urgency for the patient to be able to comply with certain protocols and, and medication regimens and things like that. And that really gets me down to saying that at the crux of all chronic disease management, you really have to establish relationship with the patient. And so I really feel like in a lot of these chronic diseases, you know, you have these health disparities that show that there are poor outcomes with these minority populations. But really what it is is a reflection of sometimes our inability as providers to build relationships with patients, to be able to provide knowledge for them to best care for themselves in regards to the diseases that they're struggling with. So if there was one thing that I would say, other than a ditto to what what Emily just said in regards to taking care of our patients, it's really that we need to provide um, more education in regards to how to build relationships between providers and patients when they're discordant for whatever reason, to be able to partner in that space to help them with their health care. And that's great. And I think um, you're an outpatient uh, clinician, so I'm sure you see the, you know, the, the asthma data are compelling. I mean, when you control, even if you control for socioeconomic factors, race in terms of worse outcomes. When we read pulmonary function tests, they're race adjusted, but those race norms, who knows where they came from? We're finally paying attention to that after you know decades of doing the wrong, of doing what might be the wrong thing, and now we're trying to reconfigure all our equipment, all our systems, because there's such a deep institutional, cultural, systematic um, biases that are hard to figure out, and we need to sort of re-engineer what, what how we look at things. The only one I thought about was uh, I just read yes I just heard yesterday that and something that struck me was you know, sickle cell disease, which is like horribly underfunded compared and yet much more prevalent than cystic fibrosis. The cystic fibrosis has a tremendous means of getting fundraising research dollars and such. And so it's really interesting how the biases are very profound in academia for the diseases and the patient care associated with them. So Solange, you work in some other sort of the turban I wear, which is a critical care space, shift from the outpatient to the inpatient a little bit in acute care, but you work in pediatrics. And so you get to see some of the both several generations of what you're seeing. Tell us what you're seeing and build on the data piece, if you don't mind. Thanks, Jespel. So I work in pediatric critical care. My, my primary interest is pediatric cardiac critical care. And so there's been a lot of work in disparities in the space. And, and we know that there have been disparities in, in, in cardiac critical care. You know, in 2001, there was an article published that showing that, that between 1979 and 1997, there was a gap in terms of mortality between white and black children 
and more more disturbingly that that gap has not closed you know over that period of time and over time we're we're still seeing postdoc mortality rates that are higher in black children higher mortality rates higher longer lengths of stay increased complication rates in in black children and you know, more recently, this high mortality related to failure to rescue. So when we look at disparity, you have to ask yourself, is it access to care or allocation of the care? And I think the, the good thing about big data that a lot of societies and organizations are starting to, to harvest up now, you know, SDS, PC4, we have the ability to look at longitudinal data and try to figure out, you know, is it just related to the fact that they live further from the hospital? Is it related to the fact that they live in poorer neighborhoods and so their referral pattern is to a hospital that may not be operating um, and have as great outcomes as other hospitals? Is there an intrinsic bias in terms of when we see a patient in the hospital in terms of how we respond to a, a child that needs to be rescued? So I think the the time is right and the ability to look at data is right and, and the spirit is willing. I think the important thing is, and you touched on this, is, is to make sure that when we look at this data, we're not, we don't say, oh, well, it's data and we're going to basically risk adjust you because you're black. We need to make sure that what is making your outcome different is what is adjusted. Interesting. So you're kind of taking a deeper dive and sort of looking at the data to say, what are the issues essentially? Sort of like when you have a tough case in any surgical case, for example, you don't just look at sort of who the surgeon was. You look at the conditions of the surgeon. You look at sort of the condition of the patient, the operating room and such. And so really diving into systemic issues that might have resulted in an outcome that you don't want. Correct. Absolutely. And so when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion work, we're kind of thinking about a broader sort of aspect of how do we take care of a patient, not just the patient in front of you, but what brought that patient in front of you, what might help prevent the next 10 patients that look like look or have some similarities there from potentially getting an adverse outcome. And so it's about taking care, not just the patient in front of you, but also the population and others at risk. Is that right? Absolutely. So that's, that's, that's great. That's very helpful. Emily, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, a lot of clinicians still are still kind of feeling this out a little bit and not fully understanding like how much they want to embrace this work and what it takes to get there. But what do you think? I mean, give me one or two things leaders and clinicians also can do better in this space and like kind of what gets under your skin. Like for me, that's when like a resident or a trainee presents, you know, someone so it presents race as the first part of the history. And it drives me crazy because we are defining someone already missing our, our presentation from the beginning. What, what do you think from your perspective are the sort of the things that you're getting in your skin or that we can do better? That's a great question. And I will say that I think that language is so important and something that we don't pay enough attention to in medicine. The biases that we impart on one another simply by our vernacular and our day-to-day exchange is is replete with references to people based on race and socio- socioeconomics. So that's something that's very troublesome to me as well, just ball. I think that one of the things that I find very fascinating about humans in general, and I've, and I've said this in numerous occasions, so John, Janisha and Jess Ball, you're probably tired of hearing me say this, but I'm tired of clinicians not taking ownership of the power that they have to make this better. And power is something that we always see in those above us and we never see our own. So we always, we're always passing the buck on who's responsible for these things. We have a, a great role to play in this. Now, 
that I say that with a lot of understanding that we use language inappropriately in this space all the time, right? It's, it's amazing to hear people talk about health inequity and making a difference on health equity when the really good thing that we can control is health care equity. We lose the forest for the trees all the time. We want, we say, well, there's not health equity. And then we look at outcomes and we say, well, to your point, Solange, the, the children live too far away from the hospital. That's actually not the problem. The problem is the fact that we didn't build the hospital near where centers of children who get sick are for financial reasons, which are important. But it's a, it's a very complex conversation. We like to make it very binary. We like to make it good, bad, yes, no. We, and that the challenge with that is that it, we're not going to make progress unless we really embrace the complexity of it. We really embrace what our role as clinicians is. I'm an emergency medicine doctor, so I solve zero problems in the world. But what I can do is be a voice and a connecting node for patients. And whether that's there, whether that's advocating uh, and, and administrative levels, whether that is sharing stories, th th that's an important role for a physician that we, we often lose sight of. And no, that's great. So you're, you're kind of advocating for like a very broad embracing of the DEI work. And it drives you crazy that people sort of simplify it. They oversimplify into a series of checkboxes and it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. And it also ignores the rich tapestry that we have uh, available to us to really address deep and meaningful connections in healthcare and to care for someone and see them, to hear them, to sort of do the things that you really want that want in life, right? To be seen, to be heard. That's great. That's very helpful. Janisha, what, what's, what, what's, what drives you nuts and sort of where do you want to see our leaders and clinicians focus? You know what? I am tired of hearing race being used as anything other than a social construct. You know, I'm tired of, yeah, that being at the forefront instead of the fact that we are all humans and that really the color of our skin really does not really hold any, any weight. And for most diseases does not hold any weight in regards to the general things that would make you well. So that's number one, just race, just being used as anything else other than something that our society created. I'm also over people using terms that generalize patients um, in a negative fashion. So, oh, this patient's non-compliant, or oh, this patient has poor health literacy. When these patients, you know, have full lives and most of them are raising families, going to jobs, you know, keeping themselves alive. And these terms that we use in medicine are really terms that we um, are using to take away our blame of why they're not progressing. I really would love to see, you know, in our clinics and in our hospitals, a deeper dive, as you're saying, into why, right? So this patient is not taking their medications. Why? You know, ask the patient, what is the barrier? This patient who we say has poor health literacy, how can I help you understand? Tell me where you're at. Tell me what you know about your disease process. And let's meet there and let's talk about, you know, where you're at and where we can go. That's what I think. That's great. That's 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 wonderful. I think that's a great way of looking at at this issue altogether. And I think you all give us some nice, colorful aspects to look at this. Solange, I already think I already asked you sort of what drives you nuts. Um, did I ask you that already? No, but it's oh, fine sorry, because 
because Janisha's answer is like spot on in terms of what makes me crazy. You know, my pet peeve is this family's non-compliance. This child is obese. They don't care about what the, the child eats. They don't come for any follow-ups. And invariably, as Janisha pointed out, it's using race as a, outside of that social construct, you know. Unfortunately, a lot of these kids, they live in food deserts, they have housing insecurity, these families have so much on their plates. And now we have a a sick child. I mean, for those of us who have kids, you know, if they have like an air infection, you lose your mind. Imagine when they actually have a life-threatening illness on top of all these um, social things. So so that is my, my pet peeve in terms of labeling them and not doing due diligence and figuring out how we can actually change the narrative in terms of supporting them to do what every parent wants, which is the best thing for their child. That's great. So the idea of labeling, the idea of judging, I think I hear the idea aspect, there's judgments made already without really understanding and seeing the individual for who they are and the factors associated with what brought them there. And, and I think that's very important. I think it's very important, which brings us to the next question. So Salon, start with you. What does a culture of diversity look like? I think it's an incredibly complex question. And I think it is in terms of your hiring practices and your retention practices. And so for me, what, what a culture of diversity looks like is having leaders that look like me, who reflect the population that we serve and who... And, who embed a a culture of this is what we want to do for our patients that look like us. And so to make a, a point on that, I think it's important that women have a place at the table, that men who are in rooms where there are no women, you know, like you, Jasper, you actually make a point of putting a spotlight on women and ensuring that they have a voice in the room, because other than that, it just doesn't change. And going back to what I said as a baby intensivist, as a baby doctor, not having a mentor. So ensuring that you have mentoring programs and programs that can educate women into how, how to become better leaders are going to be important for, for organizations. That's great. So you mentioned mentorship, sponsorship, the idea of sort of finding a place to sort of share all your experiences and such. And I think that's great. Janisha, what does it look like to you? The culture of diversity. You know, I was just thinking about that question as you were talking to Solange, and it brought me back to this question that a coach asked me about a job that I was in. She said, do you feel safe? And that was an interesting question to me because I never applied it to my job per se, you know, otherwise, you know, I've never been at risk of being fired or anything like that, you know, outside of that craziness. But, you know, just on the day to day of your job, do you feel safe? Uh, You know, when you walk into the clinic as a patient, do you feel safe? When you walk into the hospital needing care, do you feel safe? Do you feel like people are there to save you? And I mean, in medicine, that is, or not necessarily to save you, but to keep you where you're at and then to improve you, right? Not to take away from you, you know, that safety that you are going to be treated well. And and I think, you know, diversity in medicine, I think it looks like that. Individual patients, individual employees, you know, feeling safe and feeling like it's an, an area where they can grow and where they can be well. That's beautiful. So the culture of feeling safe, and I think you're kind of going beyond safety and talking about being cared for. 
that you're being nurtured, that you're being not just safe, protected, but also cared for and, and developed. Absolutely. You know, if Absolutely. you're an employee, then develop. If you're a faculty member, if you're a if you're a part of a network of clinicians, you don't, you're not just coming to do the job and just check the box or check the shift that you're actually growing in a way that you want to grow, um, mm-hmm. that recognizes you for who you are. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, both of you have nailed this. So Emily, you have a, the, the last word on this and you have the tall order of following up with those answers. The challenge that I find is that we are so far from where we want to be. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of steps to get to where we want to be. A true culture of diversity is gonna require us to move through some other uncomfortable spaces first. And those spaces are realization that for now, we have such a historical legacy in our structures and in healthcare that prevent our patients of color from feeling like we are a safe space, that regardless of how we practice now, we still have that legacy to undo before we can get to a place where we can just, we can treat everybody to care for everybody. But we we haven't even undone that historical legacy because we are still so underrepresented, not as a woman. As a woman, you know, I, I, I will say that as a white woman, I struggle a little bit because we are overrepresented in medicine by our, by our demographic. So it's really not about me as a woman. It's about, we need to undo, we need to rectify our current state before we can get to the place where everybody just wants to leapfrog to, which is, I can teach you how to care for everybody. Well, you can. The challenge is, is that your patients don't feel it yet because they sense it, they feel it, they see it. You walk into the emergency department and the racial caste system that's in our country is incredibly visible right there. As soon as you walk in, our patient representatives, our staff, mostly people of color, our physicians, mostly white. The higher you go up the care spectrum, the whiter it becomes. And if if you don't think patients can feel that, then you've never been in a situation where you are the the one in the minority group. And it's it's hard. It's very painful. But but we have a lot of work to do before we can get to the state that everybody wants to lead from to. So we're going to be intentional. We're going to create a lot of programs that help foster trust, help foster engagement and uh, growth and nurturing in a way that supersedes what we will need in the future. And then we also have to do it with the understanding that nothing that we create now is permanent and it's going to need to adjust and flow just as society adjusts and flows. That's fascinating. And you brought up um, important aspects of um, a whole bunch of stuff, culture, a number of initiatives, the amount of work that's involved here. So I'm going to let it let that be. I'm going to shift a little bit talk about you you all nailed that question um so this is personal this whole podcast series is for those who know my wife's a physician and i sort of watched her struggle and her peer struggle um as we had families and her academic career had to take a back seat because of other issues and and it brings us to the pandemic and what are we seeing after the pandemic what's been focused on Memo, you mentioned the number of women medical graduates now is exceeding the male counterparts. And yet men are in their leadership roles, the structures, whether you're an academic or practice, the schedules, the incentives are mostly male-centered in how they're incentivized. And no surprise, women are burning out faster than their male peers are often pay, paid less in academics, are less likely to be promoted, less likely to get grant funding. Um, and yet studies suggest that actually many of them are better at performing physician duties, including a recent article that suggested that the 
that the, the female surgical outcomes were better than male counterparts. I mean, it's fascinating to me, this sort of puzzle here that women are seen as more empathic, more caring, and often better physicians and, and clinicians, and yet they're burning out faster. What can we do to stop this bleed? What are you seeing? Or are you feeling the same stresses? Start with you, Emily. So this is something that I care a great deal about. And I think um, I look at I look at this through a historical lens of where women and men have come for over the last hundred years, which is we dichotomized male and female roles so much that one was essentially West and the other East. And what we've done is we've brought women up into a North, more Northern pathway, which is our East was family, home, children. And we've, we've come into the workplace. The workplace is driven by the West. The workplace is driven by that culture because it is not distracted by anything, um, anything else, right? We see that play out in all the data around, you know, ex home responsibilities and all of these things. Here's the challenge. We, we're not going to be able to go further West as, as, into, as humans. And I think that's where you're seeing, we're trying to, we're trying to fulfill this role that is so valued by an institution because it's so little distracted by the objective of an institution. But women can't do it, which is, I think, why we burn out. What I really feel we need to focus on, because I don't know many men who want to be in a unidimensional life, is to help men move into more of a northern position which is how do we, to make it truly equitable, you can't just bring everybody over to one extreme. You're going to have to meet in the middle somehow. So that's why we can advocate for maternity leave for physicians. And I completely agree with that. I mean, for crying out loud for physicians, but you are never going to get true equity, equity in the workplace if paternal leave isn't equally valued because you're sending a very different message around what is expected uh, of, of physicians and most, most men that I know would value that incredibly. There, nobody is unidimensional in this world. And so we, we've, I think we've come as far as we can in terms of trying to balance work and life and family. And we, and we, need, to help, we need to help bring everybody into a more balanced and integrated life. That's my yeah, I, may, I, may, I may build on that. So what you're kind of getting at, you may say, you, you said men in this case, but I would say almost like the whole village needs to support, whether you want to have family, whether you want to have different life goals and sort of figuring out to sort of, rather than make women necessarily do all the, do the majority of child rearing, which you know, the data, the data suggests, or I'll be honest with you, many male, in the locker room, many male colleagues actually, or in the conference rooms, they behind the women's closed doors say, oh, do we really want a woman partner? They're going to take maternity leave. They're going to be wanting to get out of here to pick up the kids or go, become a little bit late. Hear that chatter. As a, as a male, I can say I've heard that chatter many times and I've resented it um, because I do like, to your point, picking up my kids, dropping them off when I don't have, when I can, and, and being for those a bit more brief moments, um, being present you know, and so those are meaningful. And so I think to your point, your point's well taken, but the whole village needs to get more, more embrace a more of a diverse life. I like that idea. Um, Janisha, what are, what are you, what are you saying in that, in that perspective? What, how, what's your response to all these women burning out and what we can do to potentially help in the situation? Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to build on one thing that you just said, Jasper, and it's the equivalent of having males act as allies in those spaces, right? So there are a lot of males who are like you who don't 
think that those um, comments are appropriate. Um, so having those males in those spaces, you know, advocate for, you know, what is the right way to, you know, speak in such terms and to explore with their concordant groups, you know, why those feelings are there or how we, you know, push that needle forward. What does, what is another female partner? What is that signal for you? What, what feelings does that bring up for you? So that there can be that needed dialogue that happens in those safe spaces so that people are not afraid to, you know, talk, you know, talk about those issues and resolve them and move forward into the future. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a I'm a firm believer in that as well, that culture does not change until policy changes. You know, really um, changing hearts and minds is the work of deities. And I'm not a deity. So, you know, I really feel like support um, for policies and, and procedures in place, you know, um, that that keep in mind, you know, gender differences is very important, you know, from white coats that fit female bodies <laughs> to, you know, um, medical. when I was a medical student pumping in a bathroom, breast, you know, pumping milk in a bathroom because there was not a space for me to pump as a medical student, you know, having people in those high positions, even while they are still predominantly white male, having those allies in those spaces that are thinking about the policies and practices that we can put in place to protect all employees is, is really important to protect from this burnout because my husband is a professional and I cannot get any more support from my husband. So I have a lot of support in my family, but yet and still, I still feel that burnout. And it's because of those policies and procedures really not being there to support me on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, that's, that's, that's awesome. So policies, procedures, allies, I heard you've given a lot of ideas mm -hmm. of sort of like really, you want true allies from all levels. And I think that's great. Um, you shouldn't have to fight every battle alone either. But I'm kind of hearing you say that it's really much a struggle of doing it alone. That's great feedback. Um, Solange. I'm not sure how to like top all of that. Like I completely endorse what um, Emily and Janisha said. So just to take it from a, a little bit of a different angle, you touched on this Jasper, that that in in medicine and and Emily, you talked about it. in medicine. There are a lot a lot more women now. You know, and 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 there's certain specialties that are very female dominant, like pediatrics. However, you still, when you look at, at boards and you look at, um, at, um, at conferences, the majority of the, the speakers are going to be are going to be male. Um, there's just underrepresentation of leadership in, in senior positions um, in, in medicine. You know, the pediatric sepsis guideline group, um, 11 out of the 42 people were women, 11, which is crazy to me. And then the at the presentation of the 2020 Society for Critical Care Medicine, there was this the um the Congress plenary session included six men and no women. I mean, it's it's just little things like that where where what what would help and what has helped it. I've made it a point as part of DEI committees, you know, for for um, PIXIS and for PC4 is to make sure that there is a liaison with the programming committee so that, that they know that there, there are these female speakers out there, there are these black speakers out there who are phenomenal because they, they genuinely may not know that they exist. It's not necessarily malice. It's just, it's just that, 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 that connection is not occurring. So I think, um, I think leaders just need to be a little bit more mindful about reaching into DEI uh, support 
to, to ensure that there's more representation for, for women and minorities. I think that's great, as well said. So you want intentional visibility, intentional attention, attention to these aspects. And so every opportunity, what I'm hearing you say, there's a right way to involve whether it be women or there be racial ethnic groups, whether it be certain people who are clearly excellent at what they do, and also bring an element of diversity, equity, inclusion should be embraced. Is that, am I saying that right? Absolutely. Thank you, Jasper, for paraphrasing. No, so this so stuff is important. I'm just trying to understand it better so we, I can do my part better in, in this space. Um, well, that's kind of all the time we have. Um, and I wanted to thank the three of you for giving me a lot of lot to think about in this space and how to be better advocates, better allies, and better colleagues to my to my to to, to my fellow my my fellow clinicians and the teammate. Um, do you have any parting words or thoughts for any of us? And I'll just start with Emily. I was listening to Janisha and Solange, who said who had so many beautiful insights, and I it reminded me of. Um, the women's suffrage movement in this country, where you have to realize that women could never give themselves the right to vote, right? It had to be given. It had to be, that power had to be given to somebody. And so for those who feel powerless in these scenarios, we we all have a lot of power and that is, um, and, and it is our, it is our duty as, as people who live in the privileged world of medicine and we, which we all do, is to ensure that we are giving as much power to others uh, as possible, because it's certainly something that has to be given from above. Thank you. Janisha? Well, first, Jasper, I just want to say you are already a great teammate. I really have appreciated (laughs) all the support that you have given me. So I just want to say that to you. But, you know, I just feel like in general for this topic, you know, I just want us to move from the space of wanting health equity and and wanting to decrease like health disparities and move to a space where we are anti inequity, you know, actively, you know, doing things and creating, you know, creating the spaces and policies that that will not tolerate, you know, anything less. And so hopefully we can see that in the future with with all the the new advances and all the hot topics that that are in the space right now. Oh, that's fantastic. That's well said. I like that. So the building on the anti-racist theme to be anti-inequity. Um, and that's, 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 that's wonderful. Solange. Thanks, Jasper. I just wanted to echo what Janisha said, that I really appreciate all your work in this space. Um, you know, as this is Black History Month, and, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't point out that, like, that Black Black females represent 2% of all women in medicine. And um, I think there's so much work to be done in terms of diversity and having us reflect the the people and the population that we care for. Um, And it it goes to everything that that everyone has said here, you know, having allyship, it's not something that we can take. Um, It's something that that, um, we all have to work for and have support in order to, to get to that that space. Well, that's great. And thank you all for taking the time and for being such great colleagues um, in this space, um, especially, um, and even outside the space. Um, You're obviously all very talented clinicians and leaders. And so can thank you for all that you've done for everybody. And also making things better for those 
after us, you know, with making the systems better, making it better for the patients and the communities that we serve. And that's very meaningful. Um, and I just want to thank you on behalf of Consultant 360. I heard you got, we talked a lot about a lot of different things. So for our audience, some key takeaways, the ideas of, you know, embracing diversity, embracing, seeing each other, um, look at our rich tapestries of diversity defined in different ways, but really try to help each other feel safe, supported, and really grow together as a community. And patient outcomes are very complex, but they're clearly diversity, equity, inclusion, clearly affect patient outcomes, they affect community outcomes. And the problems are complex, but rather than sort of simplify them, let's really dig deep, roll up our sleeves and really address the issues at a meaningful level. Did I miss anything else? All right, well, it was great having the three of you. Um, on behalf of Consultant 360, I wanna say thank you and thank you to our listeners. Take care and have a great day.